We urge Titus that he, has, he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in all our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that you love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the word of God. Um, before we come to that passage... Won't you join me in a, in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, as, um, as we are reminded that all things are yours, that our very lives are a gift, uh, that, that you, a gift that you've given to us so freely, uh, as we consider this, this topic of money that is so difficult for us often, so awkward for us, uh, Father, we, we don't need more morality. We desperately need to see you in all your pure and perfect generosity. That you gave us your very self. That you gave us your son, your one and only, your beloved. So help us to see you this morning, Father. And help us to, to see the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ in all its height and depth and breadth. And we pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son. Amen. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. On another occasion, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's clear from uh, these two encounters with Jesus that money can easily become an idol, a false god, and overcoming the worship of that false god involves radical generosity. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. 
The New New Testament teaching on money and how to relate to money as a disciple of Jesus centers on at least two things. Contentment, that was last week, and radical generosity. That's us this morning. So today, we want to understand what radical generosity is, what it looks like in the life of an ordinary disciple, what it looks like in the life of an ordinary discipleship community, a redeemed family. And then we want to think about what will motivate us towards those pictures. So the what and then the why of radical generosity. In God's providence, we have both questions answered in the passage that Matzaling read for us. Uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, we have both of those questions answered, the what and the why of radical generosity. He's encouraging the Corinthian disciples of Jesus to follow through on a commitment they had made to help Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering because of famine. They have no food. Their local economy has collapsed. They are in dire straits, and Paul is fundraising for them through his network of his wider network of churches to try and help them in their hour of need. To encourage the Corinthian church in giving, he uses the Macedonian churches as an example of radical generosity. So it's just another part of Greece. The churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea had given in radically generous ways to help Christians they had never even met and would probably never meet. And he's using the example of those churches to help the Corinthian church and the church in Midrand understand what radical generosity is, what it looks like, and how we get there. So what did it look like? What does radical generosity look like? Discipleship generosity. Well, from the example of these churches in Macedonia, we see that radical generosity gives at inconvenient times, beyond expectations and even means, voluntarily and to the undeserving. It gives at inconvenient times, beyond expectations and even means, voluntarily to the undeserving. So let's start with the fact that radical generosity gives at inconvenient times. I gave the example last week of my friend who wants to, at the moment, he just wants to focus on getting filthy rich, and then when he arrives, then he'll give back. We may smirk, but there's a lot of that in us, isn't there? If we're honest. We all plan to be generous one day soon. We're not far off, we just need to get through this season whatever this season might be. So when you're a student, your attitude to giving is, give what? Generous with what? I'm a student. You give me some slack. When you finish your studies and you, and you get that first job, then as soon as I finish paying off this car, then watch me give. Right now, that's my focus. Give me a year or two. When you get married, you start to think about children. And, you know, we have to be responsible about this. But as soon as we've got that little nest egg in place, and when you have your first child, then you start to think about your second, and the nest egg target more than doubles in size. When the kids eventually leave the house, then it's generosity for sure. I'm a big believer. Just right now, I've just got to double down on the pension 
And then there's the legacy for the grandkids. But as soon as that's in place, you get the gist. Our basic approach to generosity is sign me up. I'll start tomorrow. And as with most things in life, tomorrow never comes. Contrast that with the churches in Macedonia. Verse 2. Not only did they overflow with generosity, they did so during a severe test of affliction. Now what is that? That's shorthand for persecution. Violent, aggressive hostility towards the church. If ever there was an inconvenient time to ask them for money, it was now. They were under immediate threat. If anything, famine was a lesser threat than the threat they were facing. They could easily make the case that they were the ones who needed support. And it's actually deeply insensitive to ask. But we see none of that. They don't even ask for a postponement. None of, we'd love to help, we just got to get through the season. It's a little bit hectic at the moment. None of that. It's a deepest joy for them to give. To give abundantly, to give immediately, at whatever cost to themselves. Radical generosity gives at inconvenient times. In fact, radical generosity gives whenever the opportunity presents itself. Secondly, Radical generosity gives beyond expectations, even beyond means. In verse 5, Paul says the Macedonian churches gave not as we expected. In other words, they exceeded expectation. They went beyond expectation. That in itself is radical, isn't it? Because if we're honest, so much of our giving, like so much of the Christian life, is all about expectation. Meeting expectation, or at least the temptation to meet expectation. We are socialized into a Christian subculture. And so our giving can very easily become about those norms and values within that culture. It's about what others in the community think of me. Am I playing by the rules of the game? Am I fitting in? Am I conforming to the standard of good Christian? And so in its worst moments, it can become a culture of shame and honor. Now, there are at least two ways of testing whether this dynamic is playing out in our own hearts, in our own, in our own family. Two simple tests. We ask, how much do I need to give? And then we grab hold of the 10% tithe that we see in the Old Testament, and we make that a rule to live by. But that rule isn't true to the New Testament teaching on money. In fact, it isn't even true to the Old Testament teaching on money. So why are we so quick to embrace it? Why do, we, why do we clutch it the moment we see it? Because we are looking to meet expectations. We want a hard line. You see, a hard line is, is a way to manipulate God and others into thinking that we're worth it, that we've passed the test. And we're happy to do whatever it takes to get up to that line. But why would we go any further? We have what we need. Right? We have our means of showing others and God that we are better than others. If 10% is the expectation, if that's what I'm going to be measured by, then I've met the social standard. 
And why would I even consider going beyond it? Another simple test. When Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, why do we find that so hard? When we act generously, why do we find it so hard to keep it to ourselves? Why are we so desperate to share it? Why do we let it slip so very easily? Especially with those whose opinions matter to us. It's because we're doing it to meet expectation or to win approval. Without even being conscious of it, we are giving to meet expectation. We are driven in our giving by expectations, the expectations of others. And so it's not charity. It's an investment. Only it's an investment in social capital. Social rather than material. Not so the Macedonians. Paul says they gave with no regard to expectation. Their decision to give and how much to give wasn't guided by expectation. In fact, and this is also radical, it wasn't even guided by their means. They gave beyond their means. That flies in the face of everything we know and believe about financial planning, doesn't it? Think about it. If you were advising the Macedonian churches, would you have supported their decision to give beyond their means? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I would. I would have said something like, you know, giving is really important, but you need to be wise. The Proverbs tell us about the ant who works hard and stores away for the winter. And remember, charity starts at home. So you want to work hard and make sure that your family are taken care of, and then you can think about giving to others out of the surplus. It's the classic Protestant money and work ethic. We would caution wisdom. That's our go-to escape clause. We hide behind wisdom, if we're honest. Not so the Apostle Paul. He applauds the Macedonians. He holds them up as an example to be honored and emulated. In verse 3, he testifies that they gave beyond their means. He celebrates the fact that they gave out of their extreme poverty. Verse 2. And it's not just the Apostle Paul. It's also his master, the Lord Jesus. The wisdom of God himself. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. You see, in the divine accounting, the divine accounting, though the poor widow gave next to nothing, she gave her very heart. Because she gave not out of her surplus, she gave out of her poverty. In the divine accounting, it's not the amount that matters. It's the heart of the giver. Now, when I preached this at the 8 o'clock, I had two brothers who came to me afterwards and just reminded me, and I'm so thankful they did, that this text has often been abused 
to extort money out of people who are in genuine poverty in order to enrich pastors. And, and some of you will come out of that kind of hurt, hurtful background. That is certainly not what I'm advocating. And in fact, if you ever suspect that that's what we're doing, I'm pleading with you, don't give us a cent. Starve us out if that's where we go. Don't let us go there. So that is certainly not where we want to go. But what we are saying, what the Scriptures are saying, is that the blessedness of giving is for everyone. Right? The blessedness of giving is for everyone. It's not the preserve of the wealthy. When Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive, he extends that blessing to everyone. So that's radical generosity. It gives beyond the expectation. It's not concerned with social expectations. And it gives beyond means. It even gives beyond means. Thirdly, radical generosity gives voluntarily. It gives voluntarily. How do you feel about giving your money away? I mean, genuinely feel in your heart of hearts. Is it something you want to do? Or is it a bit of a chore, a burden, a bit of a grudge purchase? Like paying your TV license to the SABC when you only ever stream Netflix on your computer. Is giving to others or to the church just a source of perpetual guilt and frustration for you, like the car guard at your window? You don't really want to give anything. It's a bit of an irritation. But you constantly feel like you have to. Is that, is that the dynamic at play? Is that what's going on in your hearts? Again, if I'm honest, sometimes that is happening in my own heart. Contrast that with the Macedonians, verse 3. They gave of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged for the privilege of giving out of their extreme poverty. They wanted to give. They were passionate about giving. They were queuing up and falling over each other to give and to give out of their extreme poverty. If they anything to go by, then to say that radical generosity gives voluntarily is a gross understatement. And notice that Paul wants the same for the Corinthian disciples. So he's pointing to the Macedonian disciples, but he wants the same thing for the Corinthians. Because in verse 8, he refuses to command them to give. Did you see that? As an apostle, he has every right to command them to give. He has that authority. But he, he refuses to exercise it. Why? He wants them to give as an act of love. He wants them to enjoy the blessedness that is given. He wants them to give voluntarily. Number four. Radical generosity gives to the unworthy. We can restrict our giving to those who most deserve it. We can treat giving like we treat investment. You're looking for the highest returns. For those who are most responsible. For those who have it You've got it together for those who have demonstrated some sort of ability to repay at some point. Now, there may be some merit in that, and we don't want to discard it all. We don't want to be reckless enablers or soft targets for con artists. We're not trying, we're not going out of our way to be foolish and reckless. But we do need to recognize what I commented on earlier, and that is this temptation, this tendency 
to mask what is actually greed and tight-fisted hoarding with so-called wisdom. I really do think that is a temptation in our middle-class environment. We have to recognize that if we are looking for the candidate who is truly worthy of generosity, we're never going to find him. He doesn't exist. And by the way, you and I wouldn't pass that test either. In our passage, the word grace turns up four times in just nine verses. Paul calls the famine relief aid an act of grace. And grace, per definition, is a gift to the unworthy. That's what it means. It's a gift to the unworthy. The first concern of grace is need, not worthiness. And so the spirit of radical generosity is much more willing to take a risk than we normally are. It's not trying to err. It's not trying to be stupid or foolish. But if it's going to err, it's going to err on the side of kindness, not on the side of prudence. Do you see? It looks for reasons to give rather than reasons not to give. Now, what is your first instinct? What is my first instinct? Are we looking for reasons to give? Or is our first instinct to look for reasons not to give? We need to grapple. Let me go back to Jacques Ellul, Christian sociologist. I read from him last week, and we'll go back to him again this week. This is what he writes. In the competition that always exists between man and money, we must always side, and by we, he's talking about disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must always side with humanity against the power of money. This power wants to destroy us. In our money dealings with others, money pushes us to put its interests before those of the other person. On the contrary, we cannot begin to measure the power of giving in human relations. Not only does it destroy the power of money, but even more, it introduces the one who receives the gift into the world of grace. That's what Paul seems to be describing in the Macedonian churches, that same spirit. Radical generosity is an act of grace, and therefore it gives to the unworthy. Radical generosity gives, this is what we've been saying, it gives at inconvenient times, beyond expectations, even beyond means, voluntarily to the undeserving. Now, the obvious question how are we ever going to be part of that? Because I don't know about you, but when I'm confronted with that profile of radical generosity as the gospel works its way out in the Macedonian churches, I feel like it's an impossible burden. Let me try and use an illustration to help us come to terms with this. Imagine all of your wealth, you converted all of your wealth to gold, okay? We don't have to imagine too much. It's kind of what's happening at the moment with the war in the Ukraine. There's a kind of a flight to that sort of asset. So we, we convert all of our wealth to gold. And all the gold is packed into railway wagons. You know those box cars that you sometimes see on freight trains? Often they're filled with coal. We pack all of our wealth 
into those railway wagons, those boxcars. Now imagine your wealth filled 10 boxcars of gold. It's a fun illustration, isn't it? There's your wealth. 10 boxcars. Railway freight cars full of gold. Parked at the station called me and mine. You want to move those cars down the track so that you can offload some of that wealth at other stations. How are you going to do that? Because 10 boxcars of gold has a lot of inertia. It doesn't want to go anywhere. It wants to stay put at the station called me and mine. Money does not want to get off the throne of your heart. How are you going to move that money? How are you going to get that train moving so that it starts to look like the speed train called radical generosity? Are you going to push it down the track yourself? Ten boxcars full of gold. That's a lot of moral freight. Even if you can, by some Herculean effort, manage to move those ten boxcars five meters down the track, you will be able to give away some gold, but you will only be replacing it with the pig iron of your self-righteousness. Do you see what we're saying? Think back to the rich young ruler. We read about him right at the beginning. Did you notice his wealth wasn't just material? It was also moral. Remember, he kept all the commandments since he was a boy. So if we give our money away by our own moral effort, we are just going to be replacing one idol with another. One false god where we are investing our security with another false god where we invest our security. And we're not going to get very far. We're just going to be replacing material wealth with moral wealth. Gold with pig iron. Both are, still, both are heavy. Both have inertia. Both do not want to move. Moral effort is going to get us nowhere. We need an engine to move this train. A powerful engine. We have one. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I said to you at the beginning that dethroning the idol of money has something to do with radical generosity. And that's true. It has everything to do with radical generosity, just not ours. Dethroning money has everything to do with the radical generosity of God in Christ. He was the motivation for the Macedonians. Look at verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Jesus motivated the Macedonian church. He motivated the Corinthian church. He will motivate the church in Midrand. He was rich. He became poor so that we might become rich. Only that summary doesn't do justice to his sacrifice and his gift. He lived in the divine glory and lavish abundance of eternal love. And he traded all of that for the petty 
human hatred of a naked, God-forsaken death by public execution with a crude wooden crossbar that he had carried himself. The Creator dying the carpenter's death. And he did that so that we would never have to know the absolute poverty, the total destitution, the second death of being God-forsaken ourselves. He did it so that we who are so very poor in love might know the lavish abundance and eternal love of God for ourselves. He went to the eternal slum so that we can go to the eternal palace. Think about it. Jesus didn't ask his father, how much must I give? How much is expected? He didn't give 10% of his life. He didn't give 10% of his love, 10% of his blood. He gave everything. And he didn't give it to the worthy. He gave it to you and me. He gave it because we are his treasure. We are his treasure. Once that seeps into your soul, he will become your treasure. He's the engine to the train. When you finally get the fact that Jesus has a treasure that he delights in, that he sacrifices everything for, and you are that treasure, when you finally get that, then he will become your treasure. And you will be able to freely let go of any other trifle in this life that lays claim to your heart. Just let it go. Money will be nothing but a tool to you. Nothing but an opportunity for radical generosity. O oh Lord, hasten the day. Hasten the day. Let's pray. Father, we can't even begin to thank you for giving us the gift of your Son. Your one and only, your beloved, your other self. We hesitate. We're even scared to think about what it means for how you feel about us. Father, that you delight in us, that we are your treasure, it's a mystery to us, but it is a mystery full of joy and wonder. And we pray that by your Spirit you'll give us insight into this mystery. Father, help us, help us by your Spirit to begin to fathom the height and the depth and the breadth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. Help us to see the radical generosity of your love for what it is. Free us by that love from this petty bondage to the trifling pleasures of this world. Set us free into true generosity. Set us free into the true blessedness of giving. Help us to give as freely as we've been given. And we pray this in the precious name of our supreme treasure, the delight of our hearts. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.